right, while everybody's finding their seats, a couple of announcements remind everybody that a week from Saturday on February the 8th, uh, they're going to have the last hour of, I think the whole thing is, what, four hours on the, on the CPR AED training? It's a total four hours, three hours. Anyway, you take the first part of it online, and then you uh, take the last hour or so will be uh, up at the gym uh, where I work out, and so that's a $50 cost. First, you do the part on the Internet, and then you come with your certificate from that to the, uh, to the class, and then you take that class, and they certify you and everything else. So if you're going to do that, please let me know. That way I can get you the directions over there and all the rest of the information. The day after that, on February 9th, we're having our annual congregational meeting, and so uh, that we encourage people just to stay for that to get information. There's going to be some uh, good information that's going to be given out, especially in relation to just the outreach through Dean Bible Ministries and the Internet Ministry that will be fascinating. And then the third thing is I think there are some file cabinets, CD file cabinets, that are out in the fellowship hall, and if anybody would like them, they can uh, take them. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we open God's word together this evening, let's make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure they're in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, enjoying that relationship with the Lord, and then um, we'll have, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can confess in if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we have you to come to that it's all based on grace. You've provided everything for us. You've provided a perfect salvation that provides complete and total forgiveness of sin, cleansing, enables us to walk by the Spirit so that we may deepen and strengthen our relationship with you, that we can understand your word, internalize it, assimilate it, make it a part of our thinking and a part of our lives. And Father, tonight as we continue the study in Second Samuel, as we continue to see the uh, examples here of the consequences of sin and the way sin is so destructive to individuals, to families, uh, to cultures, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand this dynamic, help us to understand and see how it works, our, our sin natures work in the same way, and help us to understand that we can live free from the power of the sin nature because of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel 14. 2 Samuel 14, and we are looking tonight at an example of power lust. 
So in the last couple of lessons, I have been looking at these situations with David's children to see how the, how the Bible uses them as an example of what happens when the sin nature uh, takes control and sin leads to self-destruction. Sin has horrific consequences. Just think about Genesis 3. Uh, Adam just ate a piece of fruit in disobedience to God. And look at all the horrors, all the terrible consequences that have come down throughout all of history, it, consequences that reverberated through the entire uh, cosmos, through all of the universe. Everything has been corrupted by sin, and that's what sin does. It is, it is destructive. So we've looked at the graphic on the sin nature, that it's driven by the lust pattern. At the very core of the sin nature is... Uh, is our self-absorption. It is all about us. It's what I want, what I want to do. This is exemplified in Isaiah 14, uh, 12 to 14, with Satan's five I wills. Each statement, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. That's what sin is all about. It's what we want, not what God wants. And at the core of the sin nature, what moves it, what motivates us, what drives us, are these various lust patterns. We sin in two areas. One is we sin in areas of morality. It's sin. It may be something good, but it's still a product of the sin nature. And it is motivated by lust and arrogance. So even though they are good things, they produce evil. That's why on several occasions... Jesus looked at his disciples and told them how wonderful they were, and they were so moral and so righteous, and, and because they followed him, they were just good people. Right? Is that what he said? No. He looked at his disciples who were following him, who were very focused on following him, but he says to them, you being evil know how to do good things. Different contexts, it was a slightly different phraseology. Know how to give good gifts to your children. Know how to do uh, good things here or there. So this is relative good. It is done in the power of the sin nature, and therefore it is corrupt. Every single person that comes into the world is corrupted by their sin nature, and they do good things. But those good things are relative good. The, the only... The only control factor you have as an unbeliever is your sin nature. And so no matter how moral you are, no matter how religious you are, no matter how ethical you are, no matter how wonderful your personality is, you're no better than any other corrupt, evil, overt sinner. And the only thing that's going to break the power of the sin nature comes in the church age with the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And that's when we first have a real ability, when any human being has a real ability to live apart from that sin nature. And it's very difficult, and we only do it when we're in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. So the area of weakness produces personal sins, overt sins, mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue. And those lust patterns trend in two directions, as we've seen, towards uh, self-righteousness 
asceticism and legalism, and this produces a moral degeneracy. This is what you see in the cults that emphasize a self-righteousness, that em emphasize a legalistic morality, but it is moral degeneracy. That's what we saw with the Pharisees. The other trend is what we normally think of as sin towards antinomianism and irrationalism, and this is depicted today, not that conservatives don't have their areas of weakness, they certainly do, but this is really depicted in the whole shift in our culture in the last few years on the left. There is such a hateful, intolerant, mean-spirited anger and resentment and, and antinomianism, there's a hate for God's law. There's a, they're like the kings of the earth we studied on Sunday morning in Psalm uh, 2 1. They're angry with God. They reject God. They are fools because they have said in their heart there is no God. And they are irrational in their hatred for God. Any hatred towards God is always irrational. And it produces an immoral degeneracy. The only thing that saves us from any form of degeneracy is the grace of God. Everybody's born a, de a degenerate because of sin. We're corrupt. And we have this high view of ourselves that because we can cloak it, camouflage it, disguise it, that we're not really that bad. And yet when we are compared to God, how do you think we'd respond? If we were suddenly in the presence of God in our sinful flesh, we would be no different from Isaiah in Isaiah 6. We'd fall on our faces, absolutely overwhelmed with our own sinfulness, crying, crying out for mercy and realizing how sinful and that we are, crying, oh, oh God, I'm a man of unclean lips. We've seen passages that we need to be reminded of over and over again. 1 Peter 2.11 Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Whether it's sexual lust, which we talked about in, first, in 2 Samuel 13 with Amnon's sexual lust for his half-sister Tamar, or whether it's Absalom, who will be the focus of our study from chapter 14 through chapter 18, whether it's Absalom who is consumed with powerless. There's an interesting parallelism here. The introduction to this section about Absalom is chapter 13. And chapter 13 gives us that visual of how the sexual lust of Amnon eats away at his soul, uh, destroys his ability to think rationally until he is consumed with his lust. It makes war against his soul until he has to violently attack and rape his half-sister Tamar. That's the same thing that happens with Absalom. But Absalom's sin is power lust. Absalom becomes consumed with power lust until he has to attack and rape his father's kingdom and overthrow it and take and put make himself king. It's the same kind of thing. Sin is destructive. Sin has consequences. And in both of these, we see how it destroys personal relationships, it destroys the future, it destroys families, it destroys a culture and a civilization. And so there is no control there. And I've, I just, I, I went through about 10 points or 11 points the first 
when I first introduced this, but I want to remind us of about four of those points. First of all, the dynamics of lust patterns are described in Genesis 4-7 as a beast, as a wild, violent, voracious beast who wants to devour somebody. That's the imagery here. Sin lies at the door in the New King James, in the New American Standards, a better translation. Sin is crouching at the door. But I have translated it, sin crouches at the door, and its desire is to control you. That's the imagery. That's the best, a much better translation. That's the idea uh, of the language that's used there. And so we tend to play with sin. It's okay. This is just, this isn't that bad. I enjoy this. This helps me get by. This is whatever the rationalization is. We think it's like a cute little uh, kitten, but it's a lion cub. And it seeks to absolutely destroy us because we deceive ourselves. Part of the arrogance skills, are we're self-absorbed. And so we get into uh, self-justification and then we get into self-deception. And self-deception, we convince ourselves it's not that bad. It's okay. I can just confess it later and I'll be okay. God will forgive me. But there are, there are consequences. Second point I emphasize is living on the basis of our lust drives enslaves and destroys us. Look at what we'll see with Absalom in these chapters. He lives on the basis of his power lust. It consumes him. It destroys him. And he ends up losing his life. And he has wreaked havoc, destruction on so many lives. He has brought the kingdom to its knees because he has led this revolt against uh, the King David. And so it, you know, we know what that's like. We, we see examples of this or the hint of this even with what's going on in, in this impeachment that's taking place uh, today is that if they were to be successful, the economy would probably implode. If we elect socialists, there have been more and more uh, people, wise people, financial, financially astute people on Wall Street who have been lifelong Democrats, and they say that if Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or any of those socialists get elected, that the economy will, com- will completely collapse because we can't pay for it. It is just a deception that you can get something for nothing that people don't have to work to earn a living. And Paul says in uh, 2 Timothy 3, if people don't work, they, they, they don't eat. And that sounds very harsh to people today, but it's the emphasis of personal responsibility, uh, human volition, the first divine institution. And in our personal lives, when we are tempted, when we come into that test to follow the lust patterns of the sin nature, the solution comes down to our volition, our decision maker. We are to walk by means of the Spirit, Paul says, and we will not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. That's the same solution that's uh, spelled out in Romans 6, that we have to think in terms of our new identity as being in Christ, that because of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, the power of the sin nature has been broken. It's still there. It's still just as evil and wicked and capable as it ever was, 
but we now can choose to walk according to righteousness, walk according to the Spirit, and to consider ourselves dead to sin, Romans 6.11. We cannot let sin reign in our mortal body, Romans 6.12. And because the... uh, because of Christ, we have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Romans 13, 4, we're commanded, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Ephesians 4, 2, we're to put off our former manner of life, not think like an unbeliever, not think according to the drives of our sin nature, and all of this when we're operating on the sin nature, it just leads to a pseudo, uh, pseudo wisdom. What we learn about the sin nature and power lust is uh, a few things that I want to add to this. First of all, it's the basic motivator in the sin nature. It's what drives us. We're trying to satisfy some lust pattern because we think that satisfying it is going to bring us happiness. It's a counterfeit happiness. It's just a, a way of searching for happiness in things that God created instead of in the Creator. I pulled into a parking lot uh, yesterday, and I saw on the, a bumper sticker on the back of the car said, I am a tree hugger and I worship the earth. At least he's honest. And I thought... Well, you know, if you'd learn to hug the creator of the trees and worship him, then you wouldn't worry about the future for trees or the future for the earth. You substituted the creation for the creator, and so you're worried that we can all lose it because you've taken the creator and the sustainer of all things out of the equation. It is a pseudo-wisdom. This is what we see in uh, Romans 1, 21 and 22 that they worship the creature rather than the creator, and professing to be wise, they became fools. Now what happens with the power lust is that there is a desire to exercise control. They want to control people. They want to have power over people. And power lust is often coupled with other sins. It's coupled with mental attitude sins of anger, deception, duplicity, uh, resentment, revenge, power lust drives with these things. We want to control people and dominate people. It's also connected to sins of the tongue, using gossip and slander and maligning to run other people down and then to elevate yourself so you get in a position and to spread fake news about people. That's just gossip in a much more sophisticated wrapping. But that's what we see with, uh, with this fake news and with fake impeachment charges and all of these other things. It's just a way to, dis- to attack and destroy people uh, politically and so you can elevate, elevate yourself. I've heard good things about what Alan Dershowitz said in his opening yesterday. What I appreciate about Dershowitz is he's a man who believes in the absolutes of the law. We may differ on opinions about what should be laws and what, what, may, what should not be laws, but he believes that if something is a law, then that's got to be followed. He believes in the original intent and the framers' intent of the, uh, of the Constitution. And what's interesting is as a Democrat, he voted for Hillary in the 2016 election, 
And I've read a couple of articles where he thinks that that he he would not be against impeaching Trump for the sake, but but if just doing it for the sake of impeaching Trump on false charges isn't good enough. So that's in contrast to those who don't have integrity who will just make up charges so that they can try to overturn the 2016 election. Now, that's a man who has a measure of integrity because he understands what the Constitution is, he understands what it means, and that whether we like it or not, that's the law of the land and we need to need to abide by it. But those who are involved with and overwhelmed by their own power less seek to destroy the institutions that are there, and that's what we see with Absalom. And so we see the use of of um, mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and then we see uh, overt sins. Often power lust is what drives people when they're involved in violent crimes, child abuse, uh, sexual abuse, uh, just uh, abuse of other people, spouse abuse, intimidation of others. All of that comes out of out of power lust. So, it, as I pointed out, it definitely shows up in political ma- manipulation, which is what we see today, that uh, attempting to manufacture crimes when there's no objective crime out there. We see it historically in the methodology of the communists in Russia, the communists in China. We see that's going on today. The Chinese are using this to uh, put forth their own translation of the Bible, to put out their own religion, to get rid of of anybody who has a religious belief in some authoritative deity because for them the state is the deity. If you get rid of God, something has to fill the vacuum. And for them it is the, it is the state, it is the head of the state, and so we need to get, they want to get rid of Christianity, Islam, uh, they want to get anything that's going to compete with the state. So this is not anything new, and we're seeing it played out in the lives of David's children, and especially Amnon with sexual lust and, and uh, Absalom with, with power lust. Now, as we look at chapter 14, chapter 14 is a chapter whose theme may not be self-evident to you. The theme of the chapter is wisdom. And we see it exemplified in David in the way he handles the situation as this uh, Joab uh, sends in this woman from uh, Tekoa. In verse 2, she's called a wise woman. And so there is this this uh, contrast uh, that is taking place in here between uh, Absalom, who is, according to the, the Proverbs, is acting like a fool, and David, who is learning from his failures, learning from his experience, and developing in wisdom. A couple of Proverbs to pay attention to. Proverbs 1.5. Now, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, doesn't mean Solomon wrote them. It was what trained Solomon. It's from his father. So this uh, originally is derived from from the wisdom of David. Uh, A wise man will hear and increase learning. 
That's what we see exemplified in David as he is responding to a good suggestion, even though it comes from, ultimately he discovers it comes from Joab, but it comes through this uh, this woman who is basically carrying on a charade in order to do something that's a lot like what Nathan did to David when da- when Nathan confronted him with his sin with Bathsheba. Remember, Nathan came in and told him a story, made up a parable. And, it, and David walked right into the middle of it and said, oh, well, the man who uh, stole the sheep, he should be taken care of. And then Nathan said, well, that's you. This woman does basically the same thing, makes up a story. And then David, because he has such a sense of right and wrong, steps in and says, well, this is what should happen. And she said, well, you're convicting yourself. So we'll get into that. But he, when he hears that, he learns from it and he makes the right decision. So a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Proverbs 3.35 says, The wise shall inherit glory. David certainly inherits glory. He sinned. He had a tremendous flaws, but he was, had a tremendous faith and trust in God. And so he will inherit glory. But shame shall be the legacy of fools. Shame is the legacy of Absalom. And incidentally, the legacy of Joab as well. And then Proverbs 19.20, a challenge for all of us, listen to counsel and receive instruction. That is grace orientation, and that is humility, that we listen to counsel And we receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. So we see on the one hand in chapters 14 through 18, the horrible consequences of power lust. And on the other hand, we see how David grows in grace. He grows in wisdom. And ultimately, he is restored to the throne and Absalom uh, Absalom dies in the midst of his rebellion. One way to look at the order of events here that I thought is a fairly simple way to understand it, if we look at the end of chapter 13, as we did last time, we see how Absalom flees. He fled to uh, Gisher, and there he went to live with his grandfather because his mother, wife of David, was... Um, was from that area up near uh, up near Damascus and was an Aramean. So he goes there in isolation. So he fled and goes to uh, the king of Geshur, and David mourns for his son every day. Now, why does David mourn mourn for Absalom? Uh, he he has this soft spot. A lot of parents do. They have a soft spot, a weakness for the rebellious kid, the kid who always gets in trouble, and that's what we see with David and and Absalom. So he flees, and he's gone for three years. Then he returns. That's what chapter 14 is about. Chapter 14 is his return, what precipitates that return, and then what happens when he returns in chapter 15, in the first part of chapter 15. 
And then in the second part of chapter 15, we see the third division, which is David fleeing from Jerusalem. And so that chapter 16 and 17 deal with David, uh, David fleeing, and then David returns. So Absalom flees, Absalom returns, David flees, David returns. That pictures what happens in chapters, uh, chapters 14 through 18. Uh, just so we orient ourselves again, here's a map of Israel, the map to the north. And here we see the area of Gesher, which is up north of the Golan Heights. Uh, today, all of this area in here, part of this area here would be part of Syria. And as we see in this next map, Gesher goes all the way up into Aram. So all, these are Arameans, and they're not part of the... A tribal uh, that's not part of the tribal allotment uh, of of uh, of Israel. Now, as we approach these chapters, this section from 14 through 18, we should note that this is a very powerfully written section. It's not the most uplifting section. It's not one of the chapters or any of the chapters that you're ever going to hear talked about in any of the feel-good, motivational, psychologized uh, megachurches. They're not ever going to talk about anything that relates to sin and the destructiveness of sin. Uh, this is very powerful because it is addressing what happens and what causes a nation to implode. It is sin. It is powerless and the, uh, the, the battle, the competition for power and control. And many scholars say that this section, 14 through 18, is at the heart of 2 Samuel. This is what describes what's going on in the family of David and the competition and the breakdown of the family as there are these attempts to uh, take control of the succession of the kingship. And what is not mentioned anywhere in this section is Solomon. Solomon is still a child, if not an infant, during during this time. But he's not mentioned. This is the battle. Uh, Amnon was the heir apparent, and and part of the reason that Absalom wanted to kill uh, kill Amnon was because he was the heir apparent, and Absalom wants the power. He wants to be the king. Once he gets Amnon out of the way, then he is able to uh, get back. Once he's able to get back to Jerusalem, then he begins to manipulate the population. He begins to uh, create a, a, a rumor campaign against David. He starts to get gather people against him because David has gotten himself into a position where he no longer holds the moral high ground because of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. His family, his sons are out of control and he can't directly confront them. There's no confrontation with their sins because they can just look at him and say, well, you did the same thing. Uh, Absalom's sins are only uh, a little bit greater than David's sins. So David has been morally compromised, his, his sons are taking liberties, and the nation is lo losing confidence 
in its leadership, so they will be misled easily. But what we see develop in this period, because David's back walking with the Lord, that he's facing the problem of the consequences of his sin, but he is able to handle them and to go through this crisis by by walking with the Lord and trusting in the Lord. We'll look at some of the Psalms that come out of this period where David learns to trust the Lord because now he is back in fellowship. He is back in right relationship with the Lord, walking with the Lord, uh, trusting in him. A lot of people ask questions about what what is exactly the dynamic of the spiritual life in the Old Testament. If you don't have a the power of the sin nature broken, you don't have the baptism by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or the filling of the Holy Spirit. What's the dynamic? Well, God, ha- the, the dynamic that we see is faith, trusting God. And it's not trusting God to forgive sins or anything. God operated differently, and that's part of it being a different dispensation. The, the dynamics and requirements and expectations for the spiritual life were not the same in the Old Testament. The issue is, are you going to trust God or not trust God? And, and it's demonstrating that even though they have the law, that there has not been an internal change through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, each dispensation puts man in a slightly different situation. In the period before the flood, there's no, there's no written Torah as far as we know. In the era before the flood, there's no written revelation, but there was a lot of revelation. They knew a lot of things. We don't know how they knew them. They're not recorded. We don't have a canon of Scripture, a pre-flood canon of Scripture. But Adam, I mean, Noah clearly knew things. When God said, uh, take two uh, unclean animals on the ark and seven clean animals, Noah knew what the difference was. Now, where did he learn that? There's no place where God tells anybody between Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 what a clean and an unclean animal is. But he obviously knew. When we get to Abraham, and uh, Abraham gets to the point where uh, God tells him to go sacrifice Isaac, his one and only son, uh, Hebrews 11 tells us that by this time he had realized that if God had promised to uh, bless him through the seed through Isaac, and that his 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 descendants would come through Isaac. Then, well, God has the power that even if he's dead, God will bring him back to life to fulfill the promise. So I can trust God. But nowhere in Genesis do we know that he came to an understanding of resurrection. There are other examples that we can go to. We can look at uh, Job chapter nineteen twenty five and following where Job says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he uses the phrase for Redeemer, Goel, which means a kinsman Redeemer. Where did he get that information? Job is writing at about the same time, or Job's, Job lives at about the same time as Isaac and Jacob. But there's no written revelation, so where did he get that information? How does he know that his Goel lives? How did he know that his Goel would stand upon the earth? 
How did he know this? There had to be some form of oral tradition that, that is passed, passed down. So that, but that's all they had. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. There's no mention of, this, of the Holy Spirit uh, walking with people in any way, shape, or form or empowering people from the outside. We see that in the post-Diluvian era. We see that in the period of the judges, that the Spirit of God comes upon. He doesn't go in, but he comes upon uh, Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and gives them power to accomplish their uh, their mission. So when you get after the law, you have this period before Abraham is called, and after Abraham, all we're told about is what happens to Abraham's family. And it goes down to Moses and the Exodus, and then they're given the law. So now you have Scripture. Now you have written revelation. Now you have the presence of God returning to the earth in the tabernacle, dwelling between, uh, between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. But you didn't have that before. But you still don't have the Holy, uh, personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. That doesn't occur in the Old Testament. You don't have the sin nature's power broken by the baptism of the Spirit. You don't have anything like the Spirit's uh, teaching like you have in this dispensation. And then after Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, something new happens. There's the baptism by the Spirit, there's the indwelling of every believer by God the Holy Spirit, making our bodies a temple for the indwelling of Christ and God the Father. We have that, and we have so much more that's developed in the church age, and that will end at, with the rapture. And in the tribulation, there, won't, there will still be written canon of Scripture, but there won't be that relationship with the Holy Spirit because the restrainer is taken away. And then you have another dynamic under the new covenant when that's established at the, at the second coming. There are similarities with the church age, but there are radical differences. The role of the Spirit is much richer, fuller, and universal in the uh, millennium than it is in the church age. And you have a lot of scholars who say, well, because it's similar, it's the same. No, similar doesn't mean the same. It just means similar. It's the differences that are important. And so we're not under the new covenant uh, right now. And so you have these different dispensations. Each one is teaching certain, uh, certain things about man's inability to, tr- to obey God and to follow God unless God does absolutely everything. And so that's what we're seeing here is under that dynamic. There is not a, a trust for God, but still... I mean, they, they, they don't have a, a, a breach with the power of the sin nature. But we see that there's still spiritual growth based on trusting God. David is a man of faith. He's a man of wisdom. And his wisdom increases because of humility. And then in chapter 14, uh, we see this exemplified. And so that's, uh, that's what we look at starting here at the very beginning. Now, when we get into this situation... Chapter 14, Absalom is off three years with his grandfather, which is not good as far as foreign policy is concerned for the uh, son of the king to be living in a foreign capital where that can just generate or degenerate into a lot of bad situations. David is in a bind, though, personally, because he doesn't know what to do. 
He knows he's morally compromised. He knows that he committed a capital crime of adultery and a capital crime of murder, and that (coughs) God removed that capital penalty from him. He still is going through uh, divine discipline. But God has commuted that capital sentence. But should he do that with Absalom? Absalom has committed a capital crime as well in the murder of his of his half brother Amnon, and he's doing it in order to gain leverage to get to the throne. So David doesn't know what to do, and consequently, he's not doing anything. So David's the first major player that we see in chapter fourteen. The second major player that we see is Joab. Now Joab is a fascinating character. On one hand, he shows elements of wisdom. Remember, wisdom in Scripture is skill. He is a skilled warrior. He shows tremendous insight into the political situations that seem to just go right past David. David doesn't see these things at all. But on the other hand, Joab is quite ruthless He's quite brutal, he's violent, he commits several murders, and so he, he looks like in, um, in, in the language of the mafia, he looks like an enforcer for the godfather, but he's not really, he's, he's out of control. He takes on missions all by himself apart from David, and usually because he sees that David's not engaged as he should be, and something needs to happen. And that's what we see in chapter 14. He knows this situation with Absalom can't continue. So he's going to come up with a solution to get David to recognize the problem and the need to bring Absalom home, which is what happens. So we see Joab being deceptive. We see him being manipulative. But when that is finally understood by David, David recognizes that Joab's right. I need to bring him home. Uh, Joab has some other motives, though. The motives aren't revealed, per se, in Scripture, but what we see is that uh, at we'll get about three chapters down the line, and Joab is going to kill Absalom. Joab understands that Absalom is a real problem. He's out of control. And it is uh, typical of, of Joab to take matters into his own hand for what he perceives to be the protection of the nation and the protection of the king. So you have these, these opposite sides to Joab. He is a nephew of David, so he's keeping it in the family He's one of three sons of David's sister, Zariah. His two brothers are Abishai and Azahel. And uh, eventually, Azahel is going to be killed, and he's going to want revenge on uh, Abner, who, who killed him. So what we see in terms of the <clears throat> skill of Joab the wisdom is that in several places he understands the situation much, much better than David does. 
For example, in 2 Samuel 3.24, he recognizes that Abner is really spying on David. And he comes to the king and says, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he's already gone? We need to deal with him. He came in here to check out, see what your troop uh, disposition is and uh, what your camp looks like. He says, surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. David's blind to that, but Joab sees the situation. So he's going to go out and eventually lay a trap for, for, uh, for Abner. In 2 Samuel 10, 12, he recognizes clearly that God is the one who gives victory in battle. 2 Samuel 10, 12, he says, be of good courage. This is when they're fighting at, um, at Ammon, uh, at Ammon. He said, be of good courage, fighting the Ammonites. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So he, he trusts, the, trusts the Lord there. He understands uh, David's emotions regarding Absalom here in chapter uh, 14, verse 1. So Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. So he has insight into David's ambivalence. That that David's concerned, but he just doesn't know know what to do. And then we see later on that when David is going to uh, sin and have a census of the people for which there will be divine discipline, uh, Joab tells him in Second Samuel twenty four three that that God's responsibility is to increase the people. And it's not your responsibility to find out how that's done. And David uh, ignores his advice. But on the negative side, he's, he's extremely violent. He is going to kill, uh, I mean, when uh, Abner kills uh, Azahel in battle, Joab assassinates Abner in revenge. It's in a peaceful situation, so he just commits cold-blooded murder in, in revenge. Then later in 2 Samuel 14, uh, he, despite his attempts to reconcile David and Absalom, Joab won't have anything to do with Absalom either. And he is really looking for an opportunity to remove Absalom because he perceives he's a threat to the throne. Uh, and he's going to be the one he's told by David not to kill Absalom, but he does it anyway. So he he's, again shows he's out of control. And uh, he uh, later, uh, when uh, he will assassinate uh, Amasa, who is Absalom's commander, and God has, I mean, God, David has put Amasa uh, into in charge of the army to replace Joab because he realizes Joab is out of control after he kills Absalom, and so Joab is filled with vindictiveness, and he and he kills Amasa. And so at the end of his life, David, who can't, he's not going to do anything about Joab, but he tells Solomon that as soon as I die, you need to take care of, you need to take care of, of uh, Joab. So that's Joab. Those are the, th- the third character is the widow from Tekoa. And she is described in verse 2 as a wise woman. So there is something about her 
something about her understanding of things and her skill at living and her skill at being able to present a, an argument, which is what she's going to do. And and so um, Joab uh, gets to her and he tells her what she's supposed to do. And then at the end of verse 3, we read, so Joab put the words into her mouth. So what she's going to do is exactly what Joab wants her to do. He coaches her. He tells her how to dress, tells her that she has to not put on any of the lotions and oils that that uh, they would put on their skin so that she looks uh, a little older, that she looks unkempt, that she looks as if she has been in mourning for a much longer time than she has been, and that she has been a widow for a long time, and he coaches her to go in to David, and that he, she is going to present this story to David. It's all made up. Nothing about the story is true. It's like the parable that Nathan told David. He just made it up, but it has a moral and ethical point almost a trap that David walks into, and it's used to confront David with uh, his inability to make a decision. And so as you read through it sometime, and when you're reading through it in your Bible, you ought to note different things like this, that there's a dialogue. She says something, David says something, she says something, David responds to her, she says something, and just note the dialogue characteristics uh, of the chapter that go down through the first <coughs> excuse me the first 24 verses so she begins a dialogue she comes in to the king and in some cases not in all cases the king could be appealed to in certain circumstances and situations in the judicial system and so she prostrates herself on the ground and she says help O king, literally she says, save me, O king. She uses the Hebrew word yasha, which is the root for Joshua, Yeshua. It's the Hebrew word that is often translated save, but I think nearly every time it's found in the Psalms and other places, it doesn't mean save me from my sin, save me eternally. It means deliver me from these these circumstances, deliver me from the problems that I am facing. So immediately when we look at this situation, she's going to create a problem-solving scenario. And what's the solution? And and that's sort of a backdrop for this whole section is for us to think in terms of what we've learned from the Word that God gives us solutions to the problems that we face in life. And so that's another area of application for us is how should we solve the problems that we face using the spiritual skills that God gives us. So she falls down on the ground showing respect and honor to the king, cries out to him, save me, O king. And he responds in verse 5 by saying, what troubles you? That's not what it says in the in the Hebrew at all. It simply, simply uses two words, what to you? And this would be an idiom, is what's the issue with you? What's the problem? Uh, that's, that's what David is asking. So then, starting in verse 3, she starts to weave her story, and these are the words that uh, Joab put into her mouth. 
uh, put into her mouth. She talks about the fact that she had two sons. They got in a fight. One struck the other and killed him. And as a result, the whole clan has risen up against her and wants her to give up the son that committed murder. And her conclusion is the point. She said, if that happened, I would be without an heir. See, the challenging point for her to David is Absalom should be the heir. You've got him in exile. You need to bring him back. Even though he killed his brother, he is the one who should be the the next king. What's the problem with that? He's not the only option. There are other brothers. There's Solomon, who's an infant or a child, and that's God's choice for for who will be the king. So she is setting this up in those verses, um, ending in verse 7, where she says, So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. Then the king says to the woman, Go to your house, I'll give orders concerning you. He demonstrates an understanding. See, he doesn't know she's just making this up. So he understands the the difficulties of the circumstances. He shows compassion and that he will uh, intervene and handle the situation. But that's not enough for the woman because that wasn't the point. So she's got to take it another, she's got to ratchet it up another notch. And in verse 9 she says, My Lord, O King, let the iniquity on me be on me. What she's pointing out is if you intervene, then everybody's going to get mad at you, but I don't want you to get the blame, so put the blame on me. It's my responsibility. Let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and the throne, his throne be guiltless. So the king says, well, if anybody says anything against you, um, bring him to me. I will deal with it, and uh, he shall not touch you anymore. So then she takes it up another notch. Now she's going to bring God into the picture. Now, we don't know if she's a believer or unbeliever, but it's always good to couch your arguments in the name of God. Give it that religious veneer. How many times do we see politicians do that today? If I talk about Jesus, I'll get more votes. So she says... Let the king remember the Lord your God and don't permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more lest they destroy my son. And he now makes a vow to the Lord. So not only has he made a commitment earlier, but now it's a vow. He he ratchets it all the way up and he says, uh, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And then she says, now, please, let me just say one more thing. She recognizes that that at this point David's patience may be running a little thin with her, and so uh, she's going to persist in her uh, in her story. And this is when she drives home the application and confronts the king with the point that Joab uh, wants him to make. And she says, uh, she says. Let the king remember the Lord your God. Don't permit the avenger of blood to destroy my son. Okay, verse 12. Therefore the woman said, Let your maidservant speak one more word. David says, Go ahead. Verse 13. Why have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? Now she's driving it home. She says, "You're Just like Nathan said, You're the man. 
She's saying, why have you done this? This is how you, and she's driving the home. This is exactly what you're doing with Absalom by keeping him away, and you're doing this uh, against the people of God. For the king speaks, this thing is one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. And then she says, "For we'll all die and become like water spilled on the ground. It'll all be a waste. She has no sense that God's in control. God's going to determine who the heir is. God is the one who's going to sustain Israel. She says, if you don't bring Absalom back, it's all going to collapse. If you don't bring Absalom back, the nation's going to fall apart and we'll all die and become like water spilled on the ground, which can't be gathered up again. So uh, then she concludes this and she begins to... uh, to give him a little flattery because she knows that she is really, you know, struck deep with this analogy. And then the king answers her down in verse 18. And here, as the king has listened to her, he realizes something's up. He realizes that the weevils have gotten into the flower that there's somebody behind the mischief, the, the woman here, and she didn't come up with this on her own. See, that's David's insight and wisdom. We see he's shown uh, compassion. Now he sees oh, what's really going on here. And so he says, don't hide anything from me. I want to ask you a few questions. And so she says, okay, let the king speak. Go ahead and ask your question. The king says, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And if you watch this carefully, he's talking to her in 19 and 20 and in 21, and the king says to Joab, Joab's been listening behind the door, and he's figuring this out, that Joab is is sitting there and hiding, listening to this whole thing, wanting to make sure it all works out fine. So the king asks her if Joab's behind this, and the woman answers and says, Yes, your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant to bring you about this change of affairs. Notice what a a sort of an antiseptic term that is. Not to bring your son home, not to bring your boy home, not to bring justice for Amna, just to change the affairs. We just want to change the situation. Because Joab's thinking, if we don't change something, I'm not going to be able to get to Absalom, and I need to get to him because he's a threat to the country and he's a threat to David. And it's going to take him a while before he's going to have that opportunity, but he knows he's not going to get it if Absalom is out of the country up in in Geshur. So the king says to Joab, all right, we'll send for Absalom. Why does he make a change? Because David realizes at this point that the situation can't go on at all. He knows it can't go on and that this is just a a bad situation for everybody. It's a bad situation for the country and Absalom needs to be back home and not under the protection of a foreign king, even if it is uh, his grandfather. And so he grants this thing, says, bring back the young man, Absalom. Now, that's kind of an interesting phrase there because Absalom is not that young. But in, in Jewish thought, 
you're a young man until you're about 40. That's why when Paul talks about Timothy as a young man, Timothy's probably 38 or 39, but he hadn't hit that magic age of 40 yet. We think you're an adult if you're, well, we used to think you're an adult if you were 21. Now we're not so sure. Maybe you're an adult if you're 35, so maybe we're going back like that. But he's pointing out by using this term that that Absalom is immature and he's not acting like a mature son. He's manipulative, he is deceptive, he is trying to gain control over everything. And so he says, bring back the man, the young man Absalom. And Joab falls to the ground on his face. See, what the scenario is, David's talking to the woman. Joab is not visibly present. And all of a sudden he just turned, Joab! We'll bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab knows, "Uh uh-oh, I've been discovered. And so he comes out and he falls on his face before the king, says, all right, I've granted this. No, excuse me. He says, today your servant knows that I have found favor, I've found grace in your sight. So we see wisdom on the part of David. We see discernment on the part of David. We see grace on the part of David. And so Joab gets up, verse 23, goes to Geshur and brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king has a condition in verse 24. Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. What does that mean, not to see David's face? This is a Hebrew idiom that not seeing David's face means that he's not going to be the recipient of David's favor. Now, let's take that idiom and plug it into Genesis 32.30. Genesis 32.30, Jacob is on his way back to the land. He is at Bethel. He's had the uh, vision of of the, the staircase to heaven, all of those things. And now there's this man that appears to him, and they wrestle through the night. And the man, and he hits the man on the on the hip, which or he gets hit on the hip, which displaces his hip, and he recognizes that he's been wrestling with God, and he calls the place Peniel because here I have met God, what, face to face. He realizes at this point that he's going to be receiving the blessing from God. That's the significance of that idiom. David says, Absalom can't see my face. I'm not going to bless him. I'm not going to provide anything for him. He's going to be, as it were, not quite under house arrest, but he's not coming to the palace, and I'm not going to to bless him. And so Absalom returns to his own house, but he doesn't see the king's face. Now, things are going to shift a little bit in verse 25, and we start to get introduced to the arrogance of Absalom, his self-absorption, and the beginning of the conspiracy to overthrow David. In verses 25 to 28, Absalom is going to is described as an extremely attractive person. He is physically beautiful. He has no blemishes. That doesn't mean uh, that he uh, doesn't have like a freckles or anything like that. He's just, he is a, a beautiful specimen of a man. He looks like a king. Remember what we saw in other places? 
Here he, in 2 Samuel 14.25, we read, Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. He's on the cover of every magazine. Everybody's looking at Absalom. He should be the king. He looks like it. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. There's nothing wrong. He is, he's perfect. This reminds us of David's brothers. Remember when God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the king? He goes and he looks at the sons and he comes to Eliab and says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He looks like he should be the king, but it's not him. The Lord speaks to Samuel at that point and says, don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, Absalom, this is what the author said. Absalom looked great. It's like, like, like Saul. It looks great. Saul looked great. Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody. If we look at 1 Samuel um, uh, 9, he had a, uh, that Nair had a, uh, Saul's father had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He looked like he should be king. But when we get to Second Samuel 14, 26, uh, we also see that he, Absalom has great pride and in his looks. He, he had beautiful hair, thick, rich, curly hair. So that when he cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair at 200 shekels, which is about five pounds. So every year he cut off about five pounds worth of his hair. So that was uh, Absalom's look. Now, the next thing we're told in verse 27 is Absalom had three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. I was probably named for his half-sister, and we're told she was a woman of beautiful appearance. But we're not told anything about the sons. I think the sons probably died in, in childhood. And the reason is, is when Absalom dies, he has no male heir. So they, ha- they do not survive. So this is Absalom's family. He stays two years in Jerusalem, and he doesn't see the king's face. And then he sends to Joab. And here we see the ruthless nature, the power control of Absalom. He sends for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. So Joab's not having anything to do with Absalom. He won't come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Joab does not want to have anything to do with Absalom. He understands what Absalom's up to. And so now we see the criminality. The end justifies the means. Uh, Absalom wants Joab to do something, so he can't, Joab won't come to him, so he sends his men over to his uh, farm, which is where he ha- it's, it's harvest time, and he has him burn his whole crop. So he destroys Joab's income for the whole year. Uh, this is criminality under the Mosaic law. 
And so Joab then comes to Absalom and says, why, why have you put my field on fire? Well, you, I asked you to come to see me twice. You won't do it. So I burned your field. Sounds like something the godfather would do. Absalom answered Joab, look, I sent to you saying, come here. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. And all I want you to do is take me to the king. Let me see the king's face, for there is iniquity in me. Let him execute me. We have to solve this problem. So in the last verse, Joab went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king, bowed himself on the face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. Now, this is simply a pro forma kiss. This is not the delight of the, like Joseph to his brothers. Uh, he is doing this. It is simply showing that he's accepting him. He can come back to court at that point. So next time we'll get into the groundwork, the foundation of Absalom's treason in chapter 15, leading to David's escape uh, from Jerusalem and the episodes that occur during that time as the country begins to fragment because of the arrogance and the power lust of Absalom. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, your goodness, your kindness, the fact that you've given us a Savior who died for our sin so that no matter how horrible we may be at times, no matter what sins we may commit, there's forgiveness because Christ died on the cross for our sins. We thank you for our salvation that is based on what Christ did, not on what we do. Father, we pray that you would help us to identify the trends of our own sin natures, as parents, that they would identify the trends of their children's sin nature so that they can be better parents and that we can face this with the Scripture to deal with, handle, restrain, restrict the horrible effects of our own sin. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.